Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we leverage science and technology to protect endangered species and ecosystems around the world. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with me, Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO of NatureServe. And I'm really pleased this month to have with me Greg Mueller, who is the Chief Scientist and Nenegi uh, Vice President of Science at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And we'll get you to pronounce that for me later and tell us why, uh, what that, why that's significant. Uh, and he also leads the Plant and Fungal Conservation Science and Research Team and graduate student training in the program done in partnership with Northwestern University, which is awesome. Um, his research focuses on the evolution, ecology, and conservation of fungi, or fungi, we're going to get to that as well, especially mushrooms, and uh, he's carried out field work all across the world um, in some really great places across the Americas, China, Australia, Asia. Um, he's the author of six books and over 100 journal articles, so we're super happy to have you here to educate us about this really important topic that is becoming something that more and more people are talking about. I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, great. Um, so I guess quickly, let's make sure with your title. Right. It's the Nagani. Nagani. I figured I had it wrong. And that's just the name of the foundation that endowed my my position. Okay. Um, but they are a, a family foundation that is incredible supporting science and the arts in the Chicago region. And they really make a lot of stuff happen in the region. So I like to highlight their name because they really make a difference. And those, those friends make things happen. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to give you a chance to talk about them because we love organizations like that. And you're right. The work they do is so important, uh, funding the kind of work that you do. So we thank them for that. Um, so first we'll start with uh, really... So it seems sort of basic, but I think a lot of people forget, right? We always think about plants and animals, but there's actually six kingdoms of life and the two big ones that everybody talks about, plants and animals. But the third one that really, um, they're all important, of course, but the third one that we're talking about today and that is really important is the fungus. Is that correct? Correct. And it's a large kingdom. Uh, estimates between 2.5 and 4 million species, um, covering everything from single-celled aquatic fungi to things, the humongous fungus, which the below-ground part covers a number of acres and can be actually seen from an airplane. You can see the, the actual where the fungus grows. So really, we have incredible species diversity, morphological diversity, and ecological diversity, which we'll be talking about. Yeah, that's really cool. So animals, plants, fungi, and then just for completeness, the protista, the archaea, and bacteria for anyone who's taking notes. Um, but let's go back and talk about, so fungus, fungi, fungi, I think probably that's a potato-potato thing. It is a potato-potato thing, and it depends on where you are in the world. And so I'm usually, when I'm in the U.S., I guess it's fungi, but when I end up in Europe of any period of time, all of a sudden it becomes fungi. And, you know, it just kind of depends on where you are. And it's all the same great organisms. And so that's the plural of fungus. Correct. Okay. And then, so what is mycology? Mycology is the study of fungi. So you don't get to be a fungonologist. 
No, not a fungologist. That's too bad. Well, a fun guy, but not a fungologist. Exactly, exactly. I, I'm glad I set you up for that pun. Um, so then bryology is what? Study of bryophytes, so mosses, liverworts, and hornworts. So okay. they are actual plants. Yep. Baseball plants to the rest of the plant kingdom, but they are plants. They're green. They photosynthesize. They do all those things that plants do. And then another thing that's sort of small and often overlooked is lichens. So we have lichenology. Right. And lichens are fungi. They're just um, a certain group of fungi that partner with um, either algae or cyanobacteria. We used to call them blue-green algae, but uh, with cyanobacteria. And so uh, lichen is just one of these special um, symbioses that, that fungi, they play with other organisms. And so just for completeness, one of the big groups of fungi are molds, right? Is there a specific title for someone who studies mold? No. So molds kind of like any of the microfungi that we, we kind of use, just like mushrooms versus toadstools. There's really no difference. You know, some people say toadstools are poisonous mushrooms, but, you know, if that doesn't really hold it's just you know just another name for a group of of a small fungi becomes molds okay so now we've got our baseline ready um and one of the things that's so fun about being able to do this podcast and talking to people like you is i get to talk to people who really care about and are working to educate a broader swath of the public about the importance of the things that they're passionate about and you've been doing that for a long time um very successfully, but was there something that caused you to want to study fungus? Like what, yeah. that a beautiful mushroom in the forest one day, what, what, what inspired you to become, to follow your career path? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a family. I was the middle of five boys. And so we the youngest went, of five boys. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> um, so, you know, we went camping with our, with our vacations because it's fun, but it was only also the only thing we could afford to do. Um, so, you know, I was out in nature and I was going to be a forest ranger. I thought that would be the greatest thing in the world. Loved going to, you know, the campfire talks and whatever else. And that's that was my goal. So I went to school. I was going to go into forestry, but then I took a botany class and said, nope, botany is where I want to be. And then I met this professor who worked with fungi and who opened up my eyes to this incredible fairly poorly known group of organisms that I knew nothing about and really got excited about that. And so I've been spending the rest of my, my, all my professional career trying to raise awareness about these incredible organisms, whether it's um, hosting undergraduate interns, high school kids, or podcasts with uh, CEOs. Exactly. Um, and that's really great. And one of the things that's been so fun here is the number of times it comes back to a teacher, to a person who, whether they were in elementary school, high school, or college, or grad school, who really set someone on a path that they really love and are passionate about. Uh, and exciting to see somebody who uh, studied something that they're now working in as well, as opposed to sort of moving off in some other direction. Yeah. Um, so one thing that uh, I know is really important, and I think you can tell us about it a little bit, is the role that fungi play in sort of life on Earth. And like, why are they important when like they're so small? 
except for the one you can see from an airplane, yeah. which is, you know, relatively, yeah. that's also something I want to talk about is like the new things that we're learning yeah. in really just the past, you know, couple of decades of yeah. bat fungus. Yeah. So first off, the fake lab fungi, for the most part, when the stuff we see, you know, if we're talking about mushrooms, uh, the, the mushroom itself, that's only the you know, the reproductive part of the organism. Think of the apple on an apple tree. Most of the organism is growing through the substrata, through the soil or leaves or wood, and it forms these thin microscopic filaments called hyphae, and in mass, it's mycelium. Okay. And it is this part of the long-lived part that interacts with the environment. Right. So the mushroom basically just gets the spores up in the air, the reproductive propagules, and all allows the glory. It, uh, yeah, it's all the glory, but do very little bit of the work. Right. So everything's going on out of sight for the most part. And so, depending on the species, that mycelium might be decomposing dead organic material. So they're basically nature's recyclers. So the most common carbon compounds on the planet are, are um, cellulose and lignin, the components of plants, and fungi are the most effective initial decomposers of lignin. And usually at this time, somebody says, well, what about termites? Well, termites have in their hindgut a whole suite of bacteria and fungi that do the breakdown. The termites themselves don't eat wood. They they depend on these this microbiome with fungi right. and bacteria to, to do the breakdown, and then they just use the products of that. Isn't so that, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It's so yeah. great. So one of the big functions are as a decomposer, and in nature, that's super important, right? Uh, think of what would be if we had, you know, a million years of tall trees uh, that have never decomposed be a problem for humans. <laughs> sometimes, that, yeah, for humans, sometimes that decomposition is a problem when it's you know breaking, you know, when it's a um, dry rot destroying your home or food spoilage or things like that. But the fungus doesn't know the difference, right? It, it's dead organic material, and so ecologically, it's super important. There's also a group of fungi that are attacking plant or animals. So they're, they're pathogens. Um, and we always give disease-causing agents a bad name, pathogens a bad name. But if you think in a kind of a, a broad native sense, if you've got a large native forest, say, with a diversity of trees and native a pathogenic fungi, they play a critical role of maintaining age demographics, right? You want older trees, you want younger trees. Some trees have got to die at the end, right, to open up a light gap so that new trees can grow out of that. So, so pathogens, by definition, aren't necessarily bad. Where you get into problem is you have a plantation that covers, you know, hundreds of acres of a single tree and you get an invasive pathogen in there and wipes it all out, that's bad. So that's pathogens. And then the other major role they play are as symbionts. And the one that I work on is a thing called mycorrhizas. Myco is Greek for foot, for myco, for fungus. 
and Risa is for root, our, our foot. And so what's happening is that mycelium actually grows with the roots of the tree or grass or whatever, depending on the on the fungus. And it is responsible for bringing in water, nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, and things like that to the plant. And in return, it takes sugars that the plant is making through photosynthesis. So you could think of it as a beneficial mutualism, but it's also kind of a controlled parasitism. And the fact that the tree or the plant is taking this water and nutrients from the fungus, and the fungus is taking sugars from the from the plant. And mm-hmm. about 80 plus percent of all plants on the planet depend on this fungus relationship to survive and thrive. Right. So I was going to ask about that. So we hear about it a lot, specifically with trees, mm-hmm. and especially recently, people have been talking about it in forests. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about, you know, this idea of are the trees connected underground and actually mm-hmm. sharing resources? Mm-hmm. Um, but you say 80% of plants depend on mycelia to be successful. At least 80, probably a little bit more. Yeah. So what's an example of something that doesn't require um, anything in the mustard family. Okay. And so mustards, um, which those of you that know, one of the lab rats of the plant world is this plant called Arabidopsis, where there's a lot of research on Arabidopsis. It's a mustard. So it's actually unique in the plant world because it doesn't form this association with fungi. So what we're learning from Arabidopsis isn't necessarily transferable to most plants, but that's, I'll get off my soapbox now. And, <laughs> that's so uh, interesting. Yeah. And what is it about the mustards that allows them to be successful without? Is there, is there some obvious feature of their roots or? Um, yeah, just, um, they're, they're able to absorb the nutrients and water on their own. Um, partially it's kind of where they oftentimes occur. Um, Because the other group of plants that are oftentimes not mycorrhizal are plants that have their feet wet all the time. So kind of riparian plants, plants that are moist because fungi like to breathe. And if they're underwater, um, they don't do their thing. So um, a lot of um, very wetland plants are, uh, you know, those aren't are often not mycorrhizal as well. So like, um, would that include mangroves and cypress, things like that? Um, mangroves do form mycorrhizas mm-hmm. um, because of, you know, some of their aerial roots can have it. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but yeah, a cypress, I'm not sure. I think they do, but just um, it's kind of uh, facultative depending yeah. on on their on their situation. Well, that's really interesting. That That's new news, new information for me. So that's really great. Um so um, let's talk a little bit about the, the ideas that are coming around now with mycorrhizae and what that means for forests. And, you know, is, you know, some people are now saying, well, like a whole forest is one organism because they're connected underground and they're sharing resources. Oh, yeah. What's going on under there and how much anthropomorphism can we engage in here? Yeah. So no, great, great questions. And it, it gets down to both how we talk about it and then what the reality is. So, so as I said, we have these this mycelium going out and a 
large tree, has lots of roots, and it can be actually connected by a number of different fungi, right? Because these roots over here might be connected by this fungus and this over here and that over. And so that mycelium goes out and that mycelium can connect with more than one tree. So we know, we have good documentation that there are um, connections between trees through this common mycelial network, the wood wide web, whatever we want to, we want to, we want to call it. Um, where we don't have good data is how far does this does this go? There are, you know, a number of laboratory studies to show that if you've got a bigger plant and a smaller plant, that you can track um nutrients of carbon, nitrogen from the big plant to the smaller plant, not even from the same species. Sometimes it's a different different species. Um, and if you sever that mycelial connection, that transfer stop, that transfer stops. So we know it's coming through the fungus. There's newer data to show that there can even be communication from plant to plant. Uh, defense signals can happen. So the, the first book was done on tomatoes and aphids. And so when these tomato plants are attacked by aphids, they put out a chemical of pheromone, I guess. I don't know if that's the correct term for it, but a, but a compound that attracts certain wasps that come and attack the aphids and reduce the aphid infection. Hmm. But the, the plant only produces that compound after it's attacked. Except that they showed that if you could keep the attack to this plant and not this plant, if they're connected by the fungus, the unaffected plant will get a signal from the infected plant and start producing the, the compound to attract this. So it's an early warning system right. uh, that, that does that. So we know that we can do that in the lab. How prevalent that is in the woods, in the forest, we're not sure and I think it's a stretch to say that the forest is one big. I still say no tree is an island because um, we know they are connected. But, you know, how far does it go just from this tree to this tree? And then it's a different connection from this tree to this tree. To mm -hmm. this so how far does if this tree is sending a signal, how far does it go? We don't know that yet. Right. It's probably a limited distance. And the communication within the mycorrhizae is a whole different Correct. question of how that works and how they get information from one end to the other because the distances can be quite large as yeah. you were talking about with the, uh, the the one that you can see from an airplane yeah uh, so let's talk about um, some of the world's largest organisms yeah so this is the humongous fungus and you're old enough not everybody on this call will be um this was in the mid 90s, I guess, early 91, 92, 93, something like that. I got a phone call, excited phone call from somebody and said, huh, they just discovered this great humongous fungus. And they wanted to go up in, it was the first one was discovered basically in the Wisconsin, Michigan border. So not that far from Chicago. They were going to organize a bus trip up there to see this thing. I said, hold on. This is all below ground. If you go up there, you're going to see this mushroom over here and this mushroom over here and this mushroom over here. You don't know that they're all connected. So what this is, is a mushroom that actually forms, um, it's a pathogen on, on trees. 
And so it'll grow on this tree and then it sends out this specialized runner that's called a rhizomorph that'll go to the next tree and go to the next tree and the next tree. And the way it was discovered is that some colleagues of mine were trying to see us, hey, do mushrooms from adjacent trees, are they closest relatives? You know, trying to get the idea of how mm. dispersal works. And so they took the DNA from these mushrooms and these mushrooms and these mushrooms, and it covered, in that case, I think it was 1,500 acres. And they found out they were all genetically identical. It was one big clone. That's, that's um, amazing. So, and then, so they said, oh, we got the humongous fungus. And then some people in Washington state said, oh, I've got a bigger fungus than you. And then my fungus is bigger than you. And I forgot what the biggest one is. It's 32 hectares or something like that. I mean, it's a big, it's a big clone. Um, and so the Michigan one that was covering 1500 acres, they could take, they could grow that in culture and saw how long, how fast it grew. Mm -hmm. Extrapolated the growth rate in the lab to the area that it was there. It was a minimum of a thousand years or older to be able to cover that, that, that area. So that's a really it interesting, the mind. It, it does boggle the mind in so many ways. And one of the things that really didn't occur to me before is like you see mushrooms and they see some seem so ephemeral, but effectively they're a perennial in the, in the plant parlance. They're not an annual, right? They're well, depending on the ecology. Yeah. If you say something that makes your life on mice dung, which some do, right? <laughs> they get in there. That's that resource is fairly limited, and For so sure. it gets in. The spores land, germinates, gets out of there, and has to transfer. So you can have things that are fairly ephemeral, yeah, to something that lives in the thousands of years long, depending on the ecology of the fungus. And one of the great things about um, the mushroom portion of the fungal world is. They're so interesting to look at. And at certain times of year, they're just everywhere. And, you know, I'll be going on a hike and I'll see people taking pictures of mushrooms. And I'm like, oh, or, you know, what are you doing? Are you, do you study mushrooms? I'm like, no, I just think it's really beautiful. And it's a totally wonderful entree into, oh, well, you know, if you care about that mushroom, then you should care about this forest. And therefore, you should be caring about conservation and biology and the biodiversity of the planet. Well, it's a great entree. And so it's one of the great things that you're able to do, I think, is convert right. your work. And um, are you able to do that at the uh, at the garden there or? Yeah. So, I mean, much of my job as a vice president is administration, as you probably understand. Uh, but I do get to, you know, um, hone my craft some and, and continue doing things. And one of the things I'm really focusing now is kind of coordinating national and, and um, international efforts for conserving fungi and trying to, and one of the first steps, I mean, since you brought up the kind of taking photographs and all this stuff is really trying to engage citizen community scientists into this, into this work. You know, I get on, I naturalist and there's, you know, I forgot the last one, like 6 million records of, of fungi and over 500,000 people across the world that are posting pictures of mushrooms, 500,000 people. It's just, I just, I mean, I know 
If you're a burner, you say that's nothing. Who cares? <laughs> but but for fungi, that's a lot of people doing 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 work. It is a lot okay. of people. Yeah, a lot of eyes on the ground. A lot of eyes on the ground, and you know, a lot of the data aren't the highest quality photos, and uh, they might be of the same thing. But so there are groups now. So I'm on the board of this organization called the Fungal um, Diversity Survey, Fundus, which has actually developed now kind of a biodiversity um, uh, database, which is a curated collection of iNaturalist photos. They've got triagers to kind of check the quality of the image, check the identification. There's something really cool. They'll actually try to contact the person that, that posted it to get more data on where it was collected, what the plant associations were, and things mm -hmm. like that. And really developing now a useful tool that we can use to start documenting what is the distribution of some of these fungi. Um, is it what are the host specificity? What are the habitats? And so making use of this growing interest and, you know, quite frankly, using the fungal beauty um, to uh, to the its advantage um, is what we're what we're trying to do. I just want to confess I'm one of those 500,000 people. I have posted several pictures of mushrooms on my iNaturalist. Thank you. I'll go search those out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've got anything special, but uh, I've definitely put a couple out there. That's great. Um, so you've traveled all around the world looking at um, mushrooms and fungus of various kinds. Where's your favorite place? Like what what mushroom or what fungus are you just like, ah, oh, this, this is the one? Ooh. So I've kind of had two different approaches to documenting where fungi occur in fungal um, diversity. So one way is I've kind of taken the narrow kind of focus on one group of fungi and throw as much data as possible and collect it all over the world. And that's this genus called Lacaria. It was, um, um, it's a mycorrhizal fungus. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's beautiful. Um, and it's common enough that you can usually find it, but you know, not a weed, you know, it just fits all that reason that you want to study it. Um, so that's my favorite fungus, I guess. Um, but the other way I've done it is these broad scale kind of surveys. And that's where I've worked in Costa Rica, South America, in China. And Costa Rica is a sweet spot because I was the uh, international coordinator for the um, Biodiversity Her um, um, Institute for Costa Rica for a number of years, the international uh, uh, coordinator for that. And so I was going down to Costa Rica two, three times a year for about 15 years in a row. So Costa Rica has a sweet spot for me. Yeah. But the most amazing, to me, the most amazing part of the world is Southern Chile and Argentina. Under those Nothofagus forests are just gorgeous with these beautiful volcanoes sticking up and these, ah, it's great. So yeah, that would be my favorite part of the world. All right. Well, that's great. Um, so I think the work that you're doing and the, the Chicago Botanic Garden is fantastic. Um, I think in some ways, things like our botanic gardens and arboretums and all are you know, unsung heroes of the conservation movement. And uh, the work that you all do with educating the public is really awesome. So I'm gonna thank you and thank the gardens uh, for engaging in that. And I just wanted to check one other thing. Um, there's um, a book that came out recently 
uh, about fungus that is making some waves, I guess. Um, and so we should maybe just make sure that the listeners know that they can look for Merlin Sheldrake's uh, book. It sounds like he's King Arthur's mycologist, but. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a great book. Uh, what Merlin does and why what is so great, it's called Entangled Life. Um, and uh, what's great about it is, is he talks about some of the latest and greatest ideas, some of which are only half baked so far. And he and he's careful to say what we know and what we don't know, but where the data are leading us and where we need more information to actually document that. So it's a it's a fascinating read. It really is a it's a great book and I, I recommend it highly. I've had a, many people sit recommend it to me recently. So I'm in the middle of it now. Um, but if I wanted to eat a mushroom in Illinois, I would... oh, then you there's only one book to do, and that's <laughs> Wild Edible Fungi of of Illinois and surrounding states by Joe McFarland and Greg Mueller. Uh, it, is, it is the book to have. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I come to Chicago later, um, probably next year, we'll have to go on a mushroom hunt. Great, love um, it. Yeah. Fun. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your body of work. It's fantastic. Thank you very much for doing all of that. Yep, my pleasure. Okay. And before we go, the bonus question is surely people are asking you about the mycelium network in Star Trek Discovery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's I'm a science fiction nerd. Yeah. I got to know. So there's that. And then there's, of course, I thought you were going to go with... Um, avatar because right. that's when i get i get that one more more often than the the network and but it is fascinating i mean i think i think it's a fascinating idea and i love to think of these interconnections and what what i find positive about these these stories is not so much that they are necessarily accurately portraying what's going on in the world as far as the extent of the connections whatever but it really does hone on the fact that all organisms are interconnected mm -hmm. and that there is, you know, we, we can't really be thinking about either conserving this or sustainably using this if we don't think about the system that it's, that it's part of. Yeah. And I think that it's that understanding and recognition of the interactions between organisms and slowly moving away from single species conservation, single species, whatever, is Absolutely. is the strength of those kind of stories because that resonates with people and they get it. The other thing I like about it is mass market science fiction is saying things like mycelium network, oh, yeah. tardigrade, and you know, words yeah. that um, seem fairly out there and they're trying to incorporate them into um, you know mass media science fiction. Oh. And uh, if that gets somebody interested in, oh, what is this whole mycelium thing? And then they end up reading Merlin's book or one of these other books about the world, Wood Wide Web and things, that's a, that's a win. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. So anyway, thanks again. That was great. Okay. I thanks. appreciate it. Okay. And um, we will uh, look forward to seeing everybody on Conservation Conversations again next month. Good. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Bye now.